can there be this devotional relationship with everything? That there's a quality of faith, a quality of trust, a quality of unconditional love that suffuses our relationship with experience, no matter what the content of experience is itself. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Hi, everyone. My name is Aurora Leonard, and I'm the Associate Director of the Living Dying Project. And I wanted to let you all know of a couple of exciting events that we have coming up. The first event is actually a unique opportunity to be with Jetsuma Tenzin Palmo herself. For those who don't know her, please get to know her. Jetsuma was one of the first Westerners to be ordained as a Tibetan Buddhist nun. She spent 12 years meditating in a cave in northern India, and later, with a blessing from the Dalai Lama, she founded a nunnery in India where women live, study, and learn Buddhist philosophy some of whom have already completed 13 years and are committed to lifelong practice. Jetsama is a wise and skilled teacher, and we are so thrilled that Ramdev will be talking with her and will be asking questions from participants who register for the event. So we would love to have you join and submit your questions ahead of time. Again, this is a rare opportunity because Jetsuma earlier this year said that she was no longer going to be doing talks with institutions. So we feel so blessed that she's making time for this. This will happen on Saturday, January 21st, 2023 at 9 a.m. Pacific time, which means Jetsuma will be tuning in at night from India, which is so generous of her. You can go to our website to learn more about her and to learn about the event, and that will be at livingdying.org. Now, the second event I wanted to tell you about is that Ramdev will be teaching his annual live Healing at the Edge, Conscious Living, Conscious Dying CEU workshops January through March. Now, these are his signature workshops where he teaches a healing model that anyone can use for themselves and with others including those dealing with end-of-life issues. We've received amazing feedback from past participants, which includes myself. Uh, It was a life-changing time for me, and I know for others, this workshop also brought to light many, many things that had been unconscious or unexplored before. So this is a, a very powerful workshop. This is also for licensed professionals as well as anyone wanting to explore deep healing. All of the proceeds go to sustain the work of the Living Dying Project. There are one and two day options as well as in-person and online options. And the first one starts as soon as January 28th, which is a few days after the Jetsuma Tenzin Palmo event. So for more details and information, please visit livingdying.org to register. We would love to see you at one of the workshops as well as the Jetsuma Tenzin Palmo event. So without further ado, here is Ramdev's new Healing at the Edge podcast episode. Thank you all. Welcome, everybody. Being in this group doesn't imply you're on the mailing list necessarily, and you'd like to get on the mailing list. Go to livingdying.org, and at the very top of the page, there's a join the mailing list button. 
And then you'll be bombarded, not so much with information about the Living Dying Project. Uh, a few days ago, there was the opening, or one of the openings at least, of this wonderful movie called Brilliant Disguise that I was at, and I guess Carly was at, maybe that's the only other people in the room here, in San Rafael. If you ever have a chance to see that movie, I highly recommend it. K.C. Tiwari was one of Maharaji's senior disciples. He He had such commitment and love that he would very spontaneously go into deep samadhi. He would just, be, he would stop breathing and become a statue because he had so much love for God. The movie's called Brilliant Disguise. I think it's going to be playing in San Francisco. It's playing right now in San Rafael. Somebody else saw it, I believe, in Santa Fe last week. And I don't know where you are, but it might be playing there at some point soon. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the path of devotion, all the way from the beginning stages of yearning and invocation to traditional devotion of being in a loving relationship with the deity or with the Dharma or with awareness itself into tantric devotion. And today I would like to go into tantric devotion much more deeply. We often think of devotion as I am devoted to something outside of myself that is better than me. There's a teacher or a teaching or a guru. And that certainly is a stage. And certainly here in the West, where people bring a lot of psychological baggage often to their spiritual practice, their meditation practice, their devotional practice, that we often see the teacher or the teaching as something out there greater. Here's a quote from Trungpa Rinpoche. When there is any concept of a higher being which is external, there is also an internal identification with a lower ego. In Buddhist devotional practices, we create an open space before doing devotional practice of mantra or visualization, going into the formlessness of the heart. We are not trying to get or accomplish anything. One just identifies with the feeling of devotion rather than having the devotion be a demand. And Suzuki Roshi says, when you bow down to Buddha, you should have no idea of Buddha, which is to become one with Buddha himself. When you become one with Buddha, one with everything that exists, you find the true meaning of being. When you forget all your dualistic ideas, everything becomes your teacher and everything can be an object of worship. Today, I'd like to talk about that quality of devotion. And for some of you who are really deeply into Vipassana meditation, one can really translate what I'm saying. I'm not going to be doing this moment to moment, but translate it into devotion to awareness itself. It doesn't have to be thought of as a, a guru figure or a deity figure, Christ or Amitabha Buddha or the Divine Mother or Hanuman. Even in the sutras, it says, it is through faith alone that one can realize the absolute nature. So that certainly in the beginning of practice, we are working with cultivating right effort, cultivating yearning, feeling that there's some place we need to get to be probably that we don't feel yet. We want to suffer less. 
be happier more. As practice deepens, we get to the stage where there's actually this loving relationship with awareness or with the deity, with Maharaji, with Hanuman, with Christ, with Buddha. But eventually, we can get to this place where we begin to realize that this devotion we're feeling isn't to something that's only outside. We begin to get that our true nature and the true nature of everybody and the true nature of everything is what we were invoking in the first place. That everything is the play of pure consciousness. Everything is the, the play of pure awareness. So imagine the difference between saying a mantra in the sense that I'm saying a mantra because I want God to pay attention to me, stage one, to then saying the mantra in, this, in the sense that I'm in a, this loving relationship. This mantra is a loving relationship with this external deity. To saying the mantra, and each time you say the word or the prayer, that the, the word itself is the deity. That each time you say the word, the sound is the complete embodiment of what the sound represents to the mind. There's absolutely no distinction between she who is saying the mantra, the sound of the mantra, and the deity that is the essential quality of the mantra. Many of us approach spiritual practice as a way of dealing with difficult emotions. The superego, the punitive superego, our sense of inadequacy and shame and guilt, our sense of anxiety. And we're using meditation, we're using spiritual practice in general as a way of going beyond this feeling of I'm inadequate and I need to fix myself. And when we finally get to Tantra then, we see that it's a very different universe that we're living in. In, in some fundamental sense, the purpose of all spiritual practice is to disengage from the ego. There's still going to be an I. There's still going to be an ego that you and I have, but we're not identified with it anymore. Ramdas has this really corny line. He says, if you're a son of a bitch and you get enlightened, you'll be an enlightened son of a bitch. There's probably some truth to that. I think it's harder to get enlightened if you're a son of a bitch. But at the same time, it's not that we've got to fix all of our personality quirks. I've met enlightened beings who are not particularly friendly people. It seems, you know, they're into, I'm a monk, you know, leave me alone or something like that. And what we're talking about here is that we can even then begin to see emotion from the tantric sense as a healing message that we don't have to get rid of anger. We don't have to get rid of sadness. We don't have to get rid of emotions that previously have, we have felt have been difficult. So we're going from devotion, which is a lot easier than the next stage, which is compassion. Compassion is more difficult than devotion because we're opening our heart to something that's difficult. We're opening our heart to suffering. But then from compassion, we go to this tantric relationship with emotions, tantric devotion, where anger itself is awakeness. It's aliveness. Maharaji got really angry at times and then immediately it was gone. It wasn't something he was holding on to. There was a meme a number of years ago that emotions only last 20 seconds. 
Payment Children said it, so it must be true, right? Uh, emotions only last 20 seconds. And I think what she was saying is that cortisol is gone in the bloodstream in 20 seconds if you don't grasp at the emotion, right? So you can feel sadness, you can feel anger, you can feel uncertainty, and just let it come and let it go. But if we have these, these emotional conditionings where we've got these samskaras, where we're feeling instead of I am blessed. We're feeling things just aren't good enough. This mantra, this subconscious mantra, things aren't good enough. I've got to fix it so it's better. When we're in that state of things aren't good enough, then we get caught in emotion and we pour cortisol on the cortisol on the cortisol. And this anger or the sadness or the grief or whatever it is lasts not for 20 seconds, but for 20 minutes or 20 hours or 20 days or, or 20 months or something like that, right? It's not that we're trying to make the emotions go away, but finally beginning to trust that we are. We are that which is whole itself, that that which we're invoking, that the deity is our own true nature. But this tantric stage is only a great idea until the mind, the heart mind is open enough through mindfulness practice and compassion practice. As long as we don't have enough compassion for our difficult emotions, the mind is going to be unstable and we won't be able to surrender into, to rest in that wisdom that uh, there isn't some higher being out there that we're lower than, but that it's all pure consciousness. It's all pure awareness. We can love awareness itself. If, if you're not into deity practice, can we love awareness? Can we love practice itself so deeply? And in fact, in Tibetan way of looking at things, they, they talk about that practice develops in stages. The outer level is taking refuge while remembering that the outer guru is simply the display uh, of the guru, which is the mind. And the inner level of practice, it purifies perceptions and it involves receiving. So we're going beyond doing, we're beginning to receive the blessing. And the secret level is that we visualize the guru in the heart. We realize that it's not something outside. And the most secret level is that the deity is none other than ourselves. We are the deity. You're the deity. Donald Trump is the deity. Vladimir Putin is the deity. John LeBlanc is the deity. <laughs> putting, putting him in all the best company there. Not only that, your anger is. And the chair you're sitting in, it's all pure consciousness. What we could be talking about here, or another way of talking about this, is unconditional love as the center of an awareness practice. So that instead of being aware of the object, per se, we're with the nature of the object, that everything has as its essential nature, pure consciousness, pure love, pure awareness itself. And that instead of getting all caught up in everything that's changing and our ego's involvement because of all past conditioning being bouncy, being bounced around by 
our relationship with all the all the stuff that we're experiencing. Instead, we're resting in that the nature of everything is whole. So, for example, Maharaji said things like, the best form to worship God is every form. Somebody asked him, what's the best form to worship God? Should I worship Hanuman? Should I worship Jesus? He said, the best form to worship God is every form. He said, see God in everyone. That includes yourself. Can we begin to see God in ourselves? Can we see God in all the people on the screen here right now? And he also said something that's really bounced around in my brain ever since. He said, to understand Shiva, you have to love the mother. Okay, so in Hindu Tantra, Shiva is the unmanifest absolute. It's pure consciousness. It's not form. It's just pure consciousness itself. And the mother is all form and matter and energy and everything that can be experienced. So he says that to really understand Shiva, to really connect with the unmanifest, to go purely into consciousness in that way, you have to have this relationship with form and matter. And this guy, Mr. Tiwari, that I was talking about in the beginning, he said to me that Hanuman, the embodiment of selfless service, lives at the, the boundary of form and formless, one foot in the world and one foot in the formless. And that having a foot in each of those creates selfless service, that you see that this whole play of the world is just uh, a manifestation of the unmanifest, and we can simply serve as we move through life. I'd like to read two poems by Hafiz, my favorite poet. I read these a few weeks ago. Know the nature of your beloved. In his loving eyes, your every thought, word, and movement is always, always beautiful. So imagine that you have this imaginary friend or this real friend who everything you do or say, no matter how neurotic you get, no matter what kind of a bad day you're having, every action, every thought, every word you say is beautiful. Hafiz again. Now is the time to know that all you do is sacred. Now, why not consider a lasting truce with yourself and God? Now is the time to understand that all your ideas of right and wrong were just a child's training wheels to be laid aside when you can finally live with truth and love. Now is the time for the world to know that every thought and action is sacred. This is the time for you to compute the impossibility that there is anything but grace. Now is the season to know that everything you do is sacred. In various traditions, various devotional traditions, there's a practice uh, in Tibetan that's known as Guru Yoga. And I'd like to explore that with you. We'll do a, a short guided meditation. Before we do that, I'll just explain the practice. But for me, it's a way of just in a moment-to-moment -moment way when I'm getting lost in life, when awareness falters a bit, certainly I can pump up awareness. But another thing I really like to do is remember those things that Maharaji said, that I'm always with you, that it's all a form of the mother. It's all the unmanifest 
it's all pure awareness being projected into duality. In the beginning of the practice, we invoke the guru. And if you're a Buddhist, you can invoke Buddha Dharma Sangha. You, you invoke it with intense, fierce, dualistic devotion and yearning. You really ask that you can feel Buddha Dharma Sangha, that you can feel the mother, that you can feel Christ, that you can feel Maharaji as a living presence in the moment. On the outer level, the guru's body is Sangha, the guru's speech is the Dharma, the guru's mind is the Buddha, Buddha Dharma Sangha. So whether we're talking about guru or whether we're talking about uh, refuge, same practice. And then we let the mind become completely filled with the presence of the guru. And we develop genuine devotion. The guru will feel like the mother who always has the greatest love for her child. This practice develops in stages, this outer taking refuge, inner practice of purifying perceptions, not getting lost in emotion, but receiving. So the Tantra is a lot about receiving the mother, receiving the guru, receiving the blessing of Buddha Dharma Sangha in each moment. We start out doing something, and as it deepens, we get involved in, we surrender into receiving the blessing of the moment. The secret level is we visualize the, the deity in the heart, and then finally we realize that this thing we brought into the heart is nothing other than our own true nature. Okay, so I'd like to do just a short guided meditation, and then we can talk about all this stuff. The, the subtitle to today's talk, which might be a good introduction to this meditation, is love something or someone so much that you love the whole world. You love awareness so much. You love the guru so much. You love Christ so much. You love the mother so much that you then end up loving the whole world. So in the beginning, invoke the guru. Invoke Buddha Dharma Sangha with intense, fierce, dualistic devotion and yearning. Maybe you're saying a mantra, maybe you're asking with a prayer, maybe you're going into the, the deeper feeling of taking refuge.
And as you begin to feel more filled with this, which you're invoking, filled with Buddha Dharma Sangha, filled with the Guru, notice how perceptions are being purified and you begin to receive the blessing as one begins to feel filled with this essential quality of the guru, of the deity, of the Dharma. And begin to visualize at the very center of your heart, this quality, this, this being, this deity, radiant, pure awareness, pure consciousness. Resting in the center of your heart. This pure consciousness radiating in all directions from your heart, infinitely before you and behind you, to the right and to the left of you, above and below you. There is no emotion or sensation or thought or perception that can arise that in any way interferes with the absolute truth of this pure awareness resting in the center of your heart-mind. In Sanskrit, there's not two words for heart and mind. The heart is the depth of the mind, the openness of the mind. And then at this most secret level, we recognize this deity as ourselves. Realizing that your body, speech, and mind have always been inseparable from the body, speech, and mind of the deity. If your body feels pain or illness, if your mind is agitated or tired, if your speech is unkind, that no matter what arises, it is the pure manifestation of this one reality. And then just resting in the natural simplicity where you don't follow thoughts nor try to prevent them from arising. There's a sense of equality between the guru and the practitioner, and yet remaining humble because you realize that there is often some unexpressed potential in you. The impossibility that what is experienced is anything but grace. And can we rest then 
with the practice of unconditional love, pure awareness, as the center of a mindfulness practice. Thoughts will still arise, sensations will still arise, perceptions. But the nature of each arising is the nature of that which you have invoked, and which is your own true nature and my own true nature. Opening to the grace in every moment, seeing absolutely no distinction between the spiritual and the mundane. Your body is a microcosm of the whole universe. What is without is within and within is without. Pure consciousness. Everything is a real form of divine consciousness. So that we're not passively receiving data, but instead experiences flowing out from us, creating form moment to moment to moment. Nothing that can arise is other than a pure manifestation of consciousness itself, of the Guru, of the essence of Dharma. I'm going to ring a bell, but I'd like you to rest in the state as much as you can. And see if you can begin to notice that when subtle impressions of past actions, some scars are activated when there's a feeling of not enough or I need to fix something, that we're able to hold it gently and that it's nothing than another form of the same divine reality that manifests as all things. So that we're learning to digest emotion, digest experience rather than getting buried again and again. This is not a mental process. It's not about creating a different story. But digesting emotions, even difficult ones, allows us to rest in aliveness, 
being fully present to what is felt moment to moment without judging, letting go of the story. Either you're devouring the mother or she is devouring you. And then devouring the mother, it's digesting experience, particularly digesting emotion moment to moment. And when she is devouring you, that's when you are lost in all of her forms, particularly some of the more difficult forms. Can there be this devotional relationship with everything? That there's a quality of faith, a quality of trust, the quality of unconditional love that suffuses our relationship with experience, no matter what the content of experience is itself. It's as if we're catching a hold of the first moment of perception rather than naming things and trying to fix them. We're trusting we can be with this ever-changing, impermanent manifestation of pure consciousness, the vibration of perception itself. And as you do this, can you expand to feel what's going on in a virtual room? 50 of us together in this room. The sense of spaciousness, of lack of boundary in a certain healthy way. The sense of connectedness, of oneness, even beyond connection. A sense of I am blessed rather than things just aren't good enough. It is through faith alone that one can realize the absolute nature. Are there any comments about what it is that I've been talking about? Thank you for inviting me. Um, all that came up was uh, one thing was you don't have to wait. You know, you don't have to wait to be perfect. And that's a given, but it's it's a felt sense of that. And then what would it be like to walk around like this all the time? Because <laughs> it's pretty sweet to have that guru going on. Well, it is going on and it is pretty sweet. And if we really ask ourselves, so in the beginning of that guru yoga practice, I said, invoke with fierce intensity this, this quality of this openness, this quality of, of the guru, this quality of loving awareness. You said something, and I forget the exact phrase, but it was so great of, it is perfect the way it is, and what, why can't we just remember that, essentially? Once we get a taste of this, we kind of become crazy for it. We become addicted to it. Uh, I was at an all-day meditation with Trungpa at the first summer at Naropa back in 1974. There was this all-day meditation. Trungpa came in and he said, how many of you have never meditated before? And maybe a quarter of the people raised their hands. He said, if I were you, I'd leave the room immediately. 
Because once you start getting a taste of this tantric reality, you're going to be addicted to it. And it's going to be really, really difficult. <laughs> Which, of course, is the perfect sales pitch. Nobody left the room because of, of the reverse psychology there that was so. Is there something more important than resting in this open state? No, it's the most important thing. And as Suzuki Roshi said, the most important thing is finding the most important thing. And Patsy's found it. <laughs> How about the rest of us? <laughs> okay. When we ask what's the most important thing, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is serving. But then by being in that state is serving in a way. Well, in, in Buddhism, they say very clearly that there are three qualities of the awakened mind or the awakened heart, same thing. The first quality is great clarity, the knowing quality. The second quality of the awakened mind is spaciousness, non-clinging. And the third quality is naturally arising compassionate activity. That when you're awake, as Aaron says, you're going to be compassionate. But I think it's how can I say this without being too pejorative? That uh, it's easy to get lost in service without being awake, using service as a way of avoiding your pain, right? So that the most important thing, to me, the most important thing is not service, but this service is the result of rest. It's the effect. And the cause is resting in true nature, awakeness, right? So that there, I mean, I know a lot of people who are nurses and doctors and healers of all different sorts who are serving and they're a bit burned out and they're a bit lost in their, maybe the bureaucracy that they're serving within. Anybody else? Um, yeah. Hi. Um, hi, Laura. Uh, hi. Um, I um, really am attracted to the idea of um, like the divine or God or whatever um, as being pure awareness. Um, it's like easier for me to conceptualize and I have religious trauma, so I don't really like working with um, a personification right. of the divine. and just the the abstract pure awareness um is easier for my mind to grasp for some reason and that's um that's been really helpful to me um in learning to trust and surrender into that awareness that that feeling of like everything being connected. Yeah. Um, I don't remember where it's going with that. <laughs> so, I hear that. Um, and I, I think for a lot of people that very early on, we had some religious upbringing and it was very dualistic and probably judgmental. I, I was raised as a Lutheran and we had to memorize in, in, uh, parochial school, Luther's small catechism, where you're basically saying things 
I'm totally unworthy of grace. I'm no good at all. But please, dear God, in your infinite wisdom, be nice to me, even though I'm really a piece of crap. <laughs> it's like, and we internalized that. And I ended up, as soon as I got off the college, I ran away from church as quickly as I could. And I went off to India and Maharaji gave me a Jesus mantra. So, so Carl Jung said that to reach complete integration of personality, you have to go back to the religion of your childhood and be able to accept it. So maybe that's not something you have to do right now. Maybe getting away from that trauma and realizing that uh, Maharaji or the Dharma is holding you in each moment is a useful thing. But eventually we have to go back to even that woundedness and realize that that is something that has brought us to this moment. That the, the, the yearning that has come out of that brokenness of early religious instruction is what has motivated and inspired us, in some sense at least, to practice in the way that we are. I mean, I, I practiced because I was so unhappy. I went to India. I almost died in my search for God because I wanted to be happy. I wanted to not suffer so much, not because I had some overwhelming love for God. That was not it at all. It was that beginning stage of invoking something that is outside and better than me that I could learn to begin to trust. And then God showed up and I was in that relationship with her, him. And then I began to figure out that, that the guru kept loving me. And anyway, that, that whole process, but I had to start out with uh, being that wounded and wanting to get away from us. Yeah, that, um, that sounds exactly the same as me. Um, yeah, just, and it, it, it really helps to, um, it makes it easier to conceptualize um, like being the divine or part of consciousness and awareness um, for me. Thank you. (laughs) Conceptualize being the divine. What an idea. Dale, it's Carly. Yeah, Carly. Um, I don't, I apologize if this is tangential, but, or maybe moving backwards, um, but you had brought up unconditional love. Um, and I got into a pretty nice conversation about love and unconditional love with somebody recently. And I was talking about, um, sending love and feeling love for people, um, who are more complicated or who feel toxic in my life and loving them from a distance, quote unquote. And the person pointed out that that is possibly conditional love and not unconditional love because I'm loving them from a distance. And I'm not sure that I agree um, because I feel like so many people we love are far away from us because that's just the nature of life right now. Um, But I think the feeling of, of love and being love is the unconditional part of it to not feel hatred and anger and resentment towards the people who may have compromised us and, and to love them from a distance 
is still unconditional love. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, so a couple of thoughts. One is, we've talked before about the chakras and how the first chakra uh, is about being grounded and it's the antidote to fear. The second chakra is about, second and third chakras are about being centered and they're the antidotes to guilt and shame. And the heart chakra is uh, the antidote to grief and the energetic quality that allows one to be in the heart chakra is to have appropriate boundaries. So to me, the heart is the the center of the spiritual path. Before the heart, we're working with ego structure and I'm being aware and I'm doing this and I don't like that. And I'm trying to be aware of this and that. And after the heart is like Tantra and be, uh, going into the oneness of things. So love or compassion can be spelled with a, a small L or a capital L, a small C or a capital C that as we go into the heart, it begins as I'm loving you, I'm loving myself, I'm having compassion for the suffering or that suffering. And as we go more deeply into it, we realize that these quality, this open-hearted quality is a release of our true nature in kind of the way that Natalie was talking about. We can use our relationship with grief itself to open to love. Rumi has this quote that I come out with every other talk practically, grief is the garden of compassion. So that uh, in the beginning of opening the heart, it's certainly true that we have to protect ourselves some, that compassion isn't just for the person out there that's suffering, it's for you. That uh, it's not my consciousness, it's the consciousness. It's not my pain, it's the pain. So that initially, uh, one experiences unconditional love with a sense of I need to have boundaries here. I need to take care of myself a bit because I'm maybe not uh, grounded and centered enough, present enough so that I can deal with the toxic nature of this other uh, other human being. And whether you call it conditional or unconditional, I don't know. I mean, to me, that's just words. But that that in the heart, we go back and forth between just resting there and noticing something's closing us down. Like the way you felt after that guru yoga uh, practice, the way Patsy was talking about that. Uh, just keep going back to that place of unconditional love. But then when we're not there, we have to have a bit of conditional love. And even in... Even in the deepest practice, uh, Dzogchen or Advaita Vedanta, not non-dual, non-practice, the, the slogan is kind of no effort at all, but when you get caught, just the slightest effort to realize that even this is an expression of unconditional love, right? So we're resting in the unconditional, and then we get a little caught in something because of our scars, because of our conditioning. Laura Lee had her upbringing. I was a Lutheran. All these things happened. I had this kind of parents. You have that kind of parents. And we're resting in openness. Our meditation has been expansive and, and nurturing in the deepest possible way. And then something comes that grabs us. And then we're back in the conditional. And it, it can only take a second or five seconds where we notice that and that, that the movement is a surrender back into the wholeness. 
It's a receiving even as much as it is a doing into the unconditional. Thank you, Dale. Yeah. Why don't we do a guided meditation? Okay, begin to bring your attention into your body, being with sensation, wherever it might be predominating. And then to stabilize awareness in a more somatic sense, take a few grounding breaths where as you're breathing out, you feel or visualize that as you're breathing out, your attention, your energy is dropping out through the base of your torso, the perineum into the earth that supports and nourishes and is grounding. And as you breathe in and with a natural, easy in-breath, you're receiving that grounding energy, trusting that you're supported, you're nourished. It's safe to be here now. Slightly fuller out-breath dropping down into the earth, not of earth of dirt and worms and rocks, but the earth of support, the mother earth element. Supported in being present. And then moving up to the lower belly underneath the navel, a few inches below the navel, inside your body as you breathe out, dropping down into the lower belly, centered, antidote to guilt and shame, letting our sense of self drop from the head down into the belly. With each out-breath, dying from who we think we are down into the center of gravity of who we are. The lower belly, the hara, the sea of chi is where all the energy of the universe can flow through us. Not our energy, not our shakti, but the shakti. when the inner child comes down enough to energetically inhabit this part of our bodies, our energetic body. With each outbreath, surrender, letting go, finding a lower belly that's open and soft, yet full and strong. If you could imagine that you had a huge blood pressure cuff around your lower belly, it doesn't collapse as you're breathing out. The pressure is the same whether you're breathing in or out. Yet it's soft and open.
almost as if you could hear my voice from your belly rather than pay attention to your belly. Pay attention from your belly. And then with this very brief foundation, invoke Buddha Dharma Sangha, invoke the guru, but realize that this is not just a mental picture, but what we are invoking, feeling, visualizing is primordially true. The guru, pure awareness is inherent imminent in each moment. So that we invoke with intense ferocity regardless of content Asking, reaching out so that we begin to feel the reality of the situation. And that this reality is centered in our heart. With each in-breath, the heart is filled with devotion, with loving-kindness, with compassion, with gratitude, forgiveness. And with each out-breath, we surrender into spaciousness in all directions. Increasingly, the practice is about surrender, about receiving, about trusting that each moment is the play of manifestation of pure awareness. Maharaji's statement, I'm always in communion with you. Be peaceful, I am everywhere. Heart-mind has great clarity. Being with each arising without grasping. Sky-like, spacious mind. Resting in the spaciousness as 
activity arises and passes away moment to moment. You are that which was invoked, your own true nature, not separate from the deity, not separate from pure awareness itself. Your body, the body of the guru, your mind, the mind of the guru, your speech, the speech of the guru. Resting in this fundamental truth. Catching the first moment of perception without needing to name. Each moment densely permeated with grace. Exploring how little effort can go into practice. Just the slightest effort of surrender when you notice that you're grasping and identified with impermanent expression. The naturally arising activity, activity of the open heart mind is compassion. This openness is open to the suffering of all sentient beings. Meeting the suffering with a connected and spacious heart mind. Those that you know, that you care about, in fact, everyone you know is suffering, grasping.
and all those countless beings that you will probably never even meet. Your heart, vast, boundless enough to open to and invite in all of that suffering. Because there is no boundaries, nothing sticks. The more you open to suffering, the lighter, more spacious the heart-mind is revealed to be. Simply resting in spaciousness. May all beings be free from suffering and from the causes of suffering. May all beings realize the boundless and transparent nature of their minds. Dedicating the merit of our practice with the wish that all beings might be free. That we're not practicing simply to free ourselves, but all beings, but certainly including ourselves. I developed a very short meditation called the two-breath meditation that I think right now would be a very good way of integrating what we just did into post-meditation. So that the two-breath meditation goes up, down, in, out. On the first in-breath, you go to the top of your head and you just extend your spine like God is straightening out your spine a little bit, motivation. And in the first out breath, you drop down into the belly, that centering breath. On the second in breath, you breathe into your heart. And the second out breath, you breathe out into spaciousness in all directions. Up, motivation, straightening the spine, down, into the belly, in to the heart, out into spaciousness. This is a practice that in very short 
order, no matter how you're caught, in my experience, bring me back to being present. And after doing it for a few minutes, you can let go of the up-down part because you maybe are motivated and centered enough and just do this very profound yet simple practice of breathing into the heart and surrendering out into your nature as pure spaciousness. It's been really a pleasure to be with everybody, a privilege, a love fest, if I might say that. Thank you all so much. Hope to see you soon. Ram. Thank you, Ramdev. Thanks, Ramdev. Thank, Thank you all. Have a good weekend. Bye, Take everybody. care. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.